Well, it is so good to be with you this weekend. My name's Chase. I'm one of the campus pastors here, and we are starting a brand new sermon series this weekend that we're calling Obstacle Course. And the main idea is that on the journey to realizing our purpose and potential in God's kingdom, we are going to encounter some obstacles. Uh, We're going to come across some hurdles and what seems like barriers, but what we're going to learn in this series is that those obstacles are actually God's way of preparing us and growing us so that we can make the biggest impact possible. And in order to get prepared for these obstacles and come out the other side stronger, uh, we're going to be looking at three of the many lessons that we can learn from the temptation of Jesus. That time right before uh, his public ministry and right after his baptism where he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And I am super excited about this series. God has been teaching me so much just in my studies and preparation for this. And I truly believe that this could be a game changer in your life and in the life of our church. Now, those are big words, I know. But I really believe that. You see, we have a pretty big vision here at Hope, and that vision is to reach the triangle and change the world. And you might hear that and think, man, that sounds like a great vision statement. It might look good posted on a wall, but is that really realistic? Is that possible? I mean, reach the entire triangle. If you just moved here, which is like 90% of you guys, the triangle is made up of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. It's an area with a population of over 2 million people. So is it really possible for every man, woman, and child that calls the triangle home to have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, in answer to that, let me read you one of my favorite verses in Acts. It's in Acts chapter 19. It's during one of Paul's missionary journeys, and he gets to this city named Ephesus in the capital of a region called Asia Minor. And that's modern-day Turkey. It's about the size of the entire Midwest in America. And now it has a population of about 80 million people. But back in Paul's day, I don't know, 40 million, maybe 20 million, way more than the 2 million of the triangle. And so Paul gets there, and he starts to share the gospel. And the first day, 12 people decide to follow Christ. And that's not so bad. But it's not 40 million. But the story continues in Acts 19, verse 8, where he says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way or Christianity. And so Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him and had discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks, which means everyone who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. So the whole country had the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how did this happen? Did Paul individually reach all of those millions of people? No way. Uh, It was ordinary people like you and like me that heard the life-changing message of Jesus and then took that message back to their family members and their friends and their co-workers and their neighbors. And eventually, two years later, they had reached all of Asia Minor. Now, I'm just simple enough to believe that we serve the same God and we preach the same gospel. So I really do think that we could see the entire triangle reached within my lifetime. It took Paul two years. I think 10 or 15 years is more than enough. But again, if this is going to happen, it's not going to be primarily through Mike or Donnie or myself or the other staff members here at Hope Community Church. We'll play a small part. But if this is going to happen, it's going to primarily happen through you listening to this message right now. And that's the first truth that you need to hear and believe as we start this series. God's primary means of expanding his kingdom is you. 
In fact, it, it might be good for you to just say that out loud. So turn to the person that you're listening uh, to this with, and uh, whoever you're with, just say, God wants to grow his kingdom through me. Right? That's heavy stuff, but it's true. In fact, that's one of the reasons that he saved you in the first place, if you're a Christ follower. When he saved you, he had other people in mind. The Bible says that you were blessed in order to be a blessing. Ephesians chapter 2, a famous verse, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For or because we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know what that means? It means God has an amazing plan for your life. He has an amazing purpose for your life. What this verse says is that we don't get to sit on the sidelines and watch God do miracles and change the world. That in his grace, he actually grants us the privilege of getting out of the bleachers and onto the field and into the game. We are the means by which God changes the world. And that's amazing. But here's what I see happen all too often. Uh, people want to make a difference in the world. There are people that want to experience God's plan and purpose for their lives, but those same people often aren't willing to go through God's training school. They aren't willing to walk through his school of preparation. Now, you may not know this, but God has a kind of boot camp that he takes all of his followers through. And just like in the military or the ninja warrior obstacle course that we saw in the video a moment ago, it can get intense. It can get difficult. But the reason he does this is to prepare you for the good works he has planned in advance, to get you ready to accomplish the mission that he has for you. You know, when I began training to plant a church a few years ago, my mentor looked at me and said something I'll never forget. He said, Chase, God's plan for your life necessitates that you change. Before God uses you, he's going to have to change you. And this is the pattern we see all throughout the Bible. It took Abraham years before God used him in a big way. It took Moses years and years before he was ready. Even Paul went through this. Some of you think that Paul saw Jesus, started following him, and the next day he was preaching the gospel and writing the books of the Bible. But that's not true. It actually took him 14 years before he was ready to set out on those famous missionary journeys. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. So here's the second truth that you need to hear and believe this weekend. And I'm completely stealing this from another pastor, but I'm pretty sure he stole it from someone else. But here it is. Between God's promise and God's payoff, there's always going to be a process. You know that saying, if you have five hours to chop down a tree, spend the first two sharpening the axe? Well, what we're going to see in this series is that that's how God works in our life as well. Between God's promise of a better marriage or becoming better parents or reaching people with the gospel and God's payoff of actually seeing those things come to fruition or become realities, there will always be a process, a process of refining us and shaping us, of sanding off the rough edges and sharpening us, a process where he's preparing you for what he's prepared you for. It's a cool saying. I saw it on a coffee cup last week. But, and let me just tell you from experience that this process is not exactly fun. That's why we're devoting four weeks uh, to talking about this process. Because the truth is that the primary way that God prepares you and matures you is not conferences, and it's not books, and it's not podcasts. It's not even sermons, and I love sermons. I'm a guy who gives sermons. Those are really helpful. But the main way that God prepares us is through trials, through hard things, through the nitty-gritty stuff of life in the midst of the broken world. 
Go and read through the Bible. You will never see someone who is used by God in a big way that hasn't first gone through multiple and painful trials and temptations. And so this process is not fun, but it's needed. And so we're going to be going through some of the common trials and temptations that God brings his followers through in order to prepare them. See, God doesn't want us to go into these seasons blindly. The cool thing that we're going to see in this series is that in the Bible we can see a pattern of how God prepares the men and women that he uses. In every person of influence we see in the Bible, we not only see a season of preparation, but we can also see a pattern of how God prepares them. And so that's what we're going to dive into to this series. That time of preparation, it's similar across the board, and that pattern is seen most clearly in the time where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, preparing him for public ministry. But we're not going to get into the temptation of Jesus just yet. That's going to be next week. This week, I really feel um, God calling me to lead us into a time of just a little bit of, of heart work. See, the things that we're going to be talking about the next few weeks, they're, they're hard truths. They're difficult truths to accept. And so the whole premise of this series is that God brings us into difficult and uncomfortable circumstances to grow us and to change us. And our natural reaction is not, woohoo, sign me up for that. Now, there's this natural inclination in all of us to react to these God-given hardships with, with some bitterness or some shock. And in some cases, even with anger. And I've just had a few conversations during my ministry career to know that many people that are listening to this right now are probably holding a grudge against God. They're harboring some resentment about some things that God has allowed to happen in their lives. And we really need to chip away at that before we move into the temptation of Jesus. So in order to do that, I want to turn your attention to the first few verses in the book of James. Now, these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible that I go back to again and again, especially during the turmoil of the past few weeks and months. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the author of this book is James. That's where we get the title. And he's the brother, really the half-brother of Jesus. So Joseph is his dad, not God, but Mary is his mom. And he became a Christ follower after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's become one of the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Actually, he introduces himself in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, or what's up? Now, that, that, that term, the 12 tribes scattered, is a weird term. So let me explain. Uh, what had happened a few years prior to James writing this book is that God had commanded all the Christians in Jerusalem to go and take the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the, world, ends of the earth. He commanded them to go make an impact, to go expand his kingdom and change the world. But apparently these guys really liked the city of Jerusalem and had no plans on leaving, so God sent persecution in the form of the Romans. And this persecution made it unsafe for Christians to live there any longer. So they basically had to run for their lives and go find homes and work where? You guessed it, Judea, Samaria, and all over the world. So they were thinking, God, we'll do this whole gospel sharing thing, but let's do like a Billy Graham crusade in the middle of the city. But God had other plans. And so these new believers have been forced out of their homeland. They're now aliens in a foreign land. And even the Jews that they meet in these new places, they're not exactly hospitable. So they're encountering their first few obstacles, the first season of preparation, and they don't like it. 
And it's gotten to the point where they're questioning why God would have allowed this to happen in their lives. And some are angry and some are bitter with God. And so that's why we're devoting a whole week to setting this series up before we get to the temptations of Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, is that these seasons of preparation can either create perseverance or anger. They can either create maturity or bitterness towards God. So we need to do a little heart check before we dive in. And you've probably noticed this. Have you noticed how two people can go through a similar trial, like the loss of a job or a bad health diagnosis, and come out of that trial in two entirely different ways? Where one grows angry and distant from God, and the other grows stronger and more dependent and thankful on God? We've all seen that. And it's all a matter of perspective. And so James uses these verses to readjust their perspective. He uses the first few verses to remind them of the pattern of God's preparation that we see all throughout the Bible. And he starts with one of the most profound sentences in the entire Bible. James 1 verse 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. See, James is giving us some amazing perspective and really a game plan for when we encounter those obstacles, those trials. James says that when you enter into those seasons of preparation, the first thing that you need to do is to consider. Now that word may be translated count in your Bibles, but he's saying we need to take a step back and stop and really think through our circumstances. Try to begin viewing things from God's perspective. He says, instead of shrinking back in fear or trying to avoid what God is doing in our lives, he says, no, no, look at those trials and consider it joy. Be thankful for them. As strange as it may sound, embrace this as an opportunity to grow. He's saying, if you want to make an impact, if you want to experience God's promise for your life, then don't respond to those obstacles and those times of preparations like we naturally tend to respond. And how do we tend to respond? Well, there's a multitude of ways. The first is that we try to avoid it if we can. That's basically what the American way of life is all about nowadays, avoiding discomfort. And I found this avoidance in my heart, especially when God is using a person to grow me and mature me. So, you know, God wants to teach us humility or how to listen or how to handle anger or deal with anger issues. And in his sovereign plan, he's decided to use a person to do that. But what do we do? We avoid that person altogether. All of us have been at the grocery store hanging out by the deli meats and we spot that coworker or neighbor that we just can't stand near the dairy. So what do we do? We make a beeline to the cereal aisle and we just hide out for a bit. Why? Because we're trying to avoid that relationship. Or another response is that we try to find something to distract or numb ourselves through the process. You know, I've talked to a lot of the people and they've been saying that during this quarantine, there's been a huge uptick in, in Netflix binge watching and drinking. We call it quarantinis, right? It's because God's using this quarantine to bring to the surface some hard stuff in our spiritual lives, maybe some inadequacies in our marriage or our parenting. And instead of noticing that and working through it, we try to distract or numb ourselves from those realities. You know, if I'm honest, I treated the first part of this quarantine like a long plane ride. Like I got a bunch of books and a lot of Netflix shows on deck. I'll just distract myself until it's over. But God doesn't want us to do that. Or maybe your response is typically just to have a pity party, like just to lay in bed. Woe is me. I can't believe this is happening to me. 
Or another common response, and something I've seen so clearly the past few weeks, is that we look for something or someone to point the finger of blame at. And I've seen this so clearly the past few months on social media that honestly this week I deleted all my accounts, and I might encourage you to do the same, but we look at this hardship in our life and we say it's because of that person that this is happening. It's because of this group. It's because of this group, and we just live in this anger or bitterness towards that cause. But James is saying don't do any of those things. He's saying embrace that trial as if it is the tool in the hands of a master craftsman shaping you into something more useful. I love the translation of that word consider, count. Because you accountants or you business owners, you do this all the time. You count up the cost, you count up the money that came in, and you do this so that you can see the profit. So you can see what all the hard work and the sweat was for. And in my experience, we're really good at counting up the cost and the negatives, but we need to learn to intentionally count the profit and the reward. James is saying, try to answer the question of this. What could God be achieving through this? That one little sentence will change your life. What could God be achieving through this? And he gives us a list of things. Now, I don't think this list is exhaustive. In fact, uh, we're going to be adding a few more things to this list in the coming weeks. But he says in verse 3, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's saying, here are some things that God can achieve through our hardships or trials. There's a greater awareness of our faith. It's tested. Where before going into that season of trial or temptation, you thought, man, I got faith that can move mountains. But coming out the other side, you're like, okay, I need to work on my faith a little bit. That's valuable. He says there's perseverance, stick-to-itiveness or grit. There's maturity. There's completeness. There's gaining something that we lack. And so his whole point and my whole point this weekend is to drastically shift our mindset when it comes to obstacles and trials and temptations and the hard stuff of life. I want to show you a Venn diagram. You math geeks will like this. I love Venn diagrams. But this first Venn diagram, this is how we typically look at our life. There's, there's four parts of the equation that we call life. There's the me circle, and that's enough to deal with. But on top of that, we have the sinful, broken world circle. That's where we get fender benders, and that's where we get sicknesses and storms. And on top of that, the Bible says we also have to contend with a real enemy, and his name is Satan. So there's this spiritual warfare component. But praise the Lord, there's the God circle that kind of helps me navigate through all these other circles. And this is kind of the equation of our lives as we typically view it. But James says that's not reality. That's not how we're supposed to view our life. We need to approach life like this, the second diagram, where, yes, there is the me circle, and yes, there is the sinful world circle. And yes, there is the Satan circle, but that's not the whole equation. There's the God circle that's above and around all of this. The Bible is clear that nothing happens in our lives outside of the sovereign plan of the God who created us. And he's told us that everything, the good and the bad, will be used by him for his glory and our good. And so we need to shift to that perspective. We need to shift from God being part of our equation to everything we encounter in life being a part of God's equation, of God's plan. Listen, every trial and hardship that happens in your life is God shaping you. It's him preparing you for what he's prepared you for. It's part of that process between God's promise and his payoff.
And when we adopt this mindset, it's gonna help us stop asking the question of why. Why would you allow this, God? Or how, how could you bring any good out of this? And instead, what? What is God up to in the midst of this? You know, maybe during this time you lost your job for a little while. And that's affected a ton of us recently, and I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through that. And I've seen a myriad of different responses. I've talked to some people, and they say, man, this is sweet. I'm making more in unemployment than I was working. That's cool. Uh, Some people, strong Christians I've talked to, were a little surprised at the anger they felt towards God for allowing that to happen. And then some people, almost unknowingly, they've taken the time to step back to consider, to count, and to ask what could God be achieving through this. I was talking with one of our elders, Jay Jennings, a few weeks ago. Amazing guy. You guys should get to know him. But he was recently furloughed until the fall. He won't have a job until the fall. And as we were talking, he says, Chase, I know this sounds like something an elder should say. This is kind of holier than thou, but I really believe this. I was thinking, I was considering, if one of the young people that I work with were furloughed, you know, they don't have savings. They're not debt-free. That'd be like a hurricane in their lives. But as I'm looking at this situation, really considering it, we're good for a few months. It's more like a short thunderstorm in our lives. And I've seen him during this time. He's been able to help out our video team on a number of occasions as well as step into a few uh, situations at the church and just offer wisdom and guidance. He's probably been able to spend more time with family, and he gets it. Instead of reacting in anger, he took time to consider and counted up the benefits, and he kept taking steps in his walk with God. You know, for my family during this season, the, the biggest hardship or trial has been parenting issues. We learned during the first few weeks of this quarantine that there are just some, some parenting issues lurking below the surface that had not been addressed, and uh, they needed to be addressed. Um, during the busyness of life before the quarantine with school and work and sports and voice lessons, all of those issues were kind of kept at bay. They were on the sidelines, but in the stress of the lockdown, we were just confronted with some stuff that we had to address. We realized that my wife and I simply weren't equipped to really love our daughter well. Um, so... Uh, we decided to reach out to a family counselor. And let me just give a quick plug for counseling. I'll talk to couples all the time who says, my husband won't go to counseling or my wife won't go to counseling. Go to counseling. It's good. It's amazing. Got to find the right counselor. But my wife and I go a few times a year. It's like changing the oil in the car. Go to counseling. So that's what we did. And after working with this counselor and just having some good discussions with my family, uh, we've worked through some of those issues. Not all, but some. And we've developed some important parenting skills. And I was, look, I was looking back at this the other week, and it was the super, super hard situation in our life. But right in the middle of it, something cool happened. Uh, we received our license to be foster parents in Wake County. Now, we were foster parents in Asheville. When we lived there, we had to get recertified in this county. And I was thinking to myself, do you think it's a coincidence that we went through a hard parenting situation right about the time we became licensed to be foster parents? You think it's a coincidence that God instilled in us some perseverance or wisdom when it came to caring for children? No. So as hard as the past few weeks have been for us as parents, the end result is profit. We've learned a little bit more. We're relying on God a little bit more. We're we're making parenting a priority a little bit more. Jenny and I are on the same page a little bit more. You see that? And so the truth that we see in these verses and the truth that we're going to see in this series and the truth that we really need to come to grips with this weekend is that God is sovereign. And nothing happens in your life outside of that plan, but he's also good. 
As Tim Keller says, God will allow evil, but only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. Now at this point, I want to get a little bit honest. And this is why I think this week was needed. Because it's easy to hear this and nod your head and say yes when we're talking about trials like flat tires or being late on a water bill or uh, disagreement with a coworker. But some of you, because I know you and I talk to you often, are in the midst of some pretty severe trials. And I don't want to minimize that. And I don't want to just throw out these cute little sayings that don't speak to those hard situations that you're in because it's here that I might run the risk of offending you, and rightly so. If I don't acknowledge the real struggle, it's going to be for many of us to see the good that God is working through our trials. Because some of those trials are really intense. The truth is some of you are facing the loss of a business that you worked years to get off the ground. Some of you are going through infertility, the death of a loved one. I know a spouse has left you during this time. There's a bad health diagnosis. And so the truth is that there will be certain situations where it will be very hard to believe the things that I just said. Where it'll be very hard to see any good that God could bring. And if that's you right now, James has something else to say. Look at verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. And it seems like the simple sentence, but it's profound. James knows that, that these obstacles, these trials, especially when they're severe, can end up in anger towards God. And he knows that that anger has a way of driving a wedge between you and God or creating distance in that relationship. And if I had to guess, many of you are in that spot right now. Because of something that happened in your life years ago, some really hard season that you went through. You're listening this weekend, but if you're honest, you'd have to say your relationship with God has never been the same since. And you do the church thing, and you do the prayer thing, and you do the Bible thing, but there's just this distance. And it's because you don't have an answer to that question of how. How could you bring good out of this, or why? Why would you even allow this? And James says if that's you, if you've gotten to that point, and the best thing that you can do is not stay distant from God or avoid him, but instead draw near to God. He says the best thing that you can do is lay down your grudge against him and to go to him like a child goes to his father and just say, God, I don't know the answers of how or why, but you do. So could you just help me out? Could you give me an answer? I've been avoiding you for a few weeks or months or decades, but, but you're the only ones with the answers. Could, could you pull back the curtain a little bit? See, James knows the truth is that you'll never move forward in your walk with God if you don't first move near in your relationship with God. So you go to him, you draw near, and you ask him for the wisdom that you lack. And you may get an answer immediately. That's happened to me a few times where I just stood up from a prayer time and I had the answer that I was seeking through God's word. But hear, hear this, James doesn't promise that. He says you will receive wisdom, but he doesn't say when. There will be times when you don't receive an answer or when the only answer that you receive is wait. And that's okay. I was talking with James Jenny, uh, J, J. Jennings about these verses uh, and he said, you know, if he immediately answered us, would that create steadfastness? Would that create perseverance? No, it wouldn't. But here's the cool thing. Even if you don't get an answer, 
You know what you do get by drawing in the air and asking him for wisdom? You get closeness. You get nearness to him again. And if I were to be honest, I would say that the times where I felt God's presence most clearly and most powerfully were not worship times during church, were not listening to a sermon, but they were in my prayer times in the midst of a hard trial where I wasn't receiving an answer. The times that I felt closest to God have been during season of waiting. I remember sitting in the chapel at the Raleigh campus for weeks and weeks during my lunch break during a really hard time in my life where I needed wisdom. And I just would pour out my heart to God and ask for him to answer. And eventually I got an answer months later, but it was in the waiting. It was in those prayer times in the chapel where I experienced him most clearly. And just to be honest, at the end of the day, God has already answered any question that we could ever ask him about his goodness or his power or his plans or about how he could possibly use evil and suffering and pain for good. And he's answered those questions fully and finally through the cross of Jesus Christ. At the feet of a crucified Savior, all of our questions find their ultimate answer. Out of the worst day in history of the world, out of the most physical and mental and spiritual anguish that any person has ever felt, God brought the most good. That horrible day led to glory and honor for Jesus and salvation for us. Now for the disciples hanging out by the tomb for three days, it didn't appear that way, but now we know. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only is God sovereign, but he is good. And here's the good news. God can handle your questions. You don't need to stay distant because you're afraid that you'll offend him by asking him these things. Not once in scripture does God shame a person for drawing near and asking why or how. Now we need to ask humbly and honestly. James says we need to do it believingly and not doubting. But he never faults us for that. It says in James 1.5, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. That means you can go to God a hundred times and he's never annoyed with you. You can go to God right now this weekend and say, God, because of something that happened in my past, I've been keeping my distance, and I just, I just need an answer to how or why would you allow this? Would you, would, you, would you speak with me and work through this with me? And so, yeah, draw near. Let's do that. And then you can get up tomorrow and say, God, I know that we talked. I thought that I worked through this, but there's still some bitterness. There's still some resentment. I'm sorry. Can we go through this again? And he'll say, yeah, absolutely. And then a week later, we can wake up and say, God, I'm still not done with this. I I still haven't dealt with this. Can we talk again? And God will say, absolutely. I can't promise that you'll always get the answer you're seeking, but I can promise that you'll get grace and you'll get mercy. And I'm so thankful that the Bible says one day we will receive an answer to every single question that we might have for God. One of my favorite verses, and it's so profound, it's in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 16, this is Paul writing. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. (laughs) This is Paul. He's been beaten beyond recognition too many times to count. He's been shipwrecked. He's gone without food. Eventually he will be martyred for the sake of Jesus. And he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us or preparing us for an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. He's saying that somehow, some way, these hard and painful trials that we go to are intimately linked to the glory that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth, that somehow these trials and tribulations are actually adding to the joy that we will experience one day. And what he's saying is that when we're done with our time here on earth and we finally enter into eternity and we see Jesus face to face, all of our questions will be answered when we see him. And I think the answers to those questions will be a big reason for why we burst into praise and worship for all of eternity. Where we'll hit our knees and we'll say, I thought you were distant, but you were near. I didn't know why you would allow this, but now I see why. I didn't know how you could possibly use this for good, but now I see all the good that has come from it. You're wise, you're faithful, you're powerful, you're kind, and we'll just sing out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And that chorus will echo into eternity. So your questions, my questions, our questions, they will be answered one day. So if that's you this weekend, bitter or angry, or distant from God, man, I just encourage you, draw near. Lay down that grudge. Draw close. Ask for wisdom, and I promise you, he will meet you in the waiting. You can trust him. Or maybe you're listening right now, and you don't yet believe in Jesus. Let me just say, we're so glad that you're listening. You picked a nice, light, and fun weekend to listen, huh? But maybe the reason that you don't believe is because you've had to suffer so much in your life. You look back over your life and at all the hardships and you think, man, there can't possibly be a God. And if there is, and he would allow all of that, then I don't want anything to do with him. And if that's you, I want to ask you a really hard question this week. And I want you to think about it in the days ahead. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but I just want to get really, really honest. Could it be that the very experiences you've used as proof that God doesn't exist are actually the uncomfortable mercies of God trying to draw you into a relationship with him. And even though those experiences were hard, and I can't imagine how hard in an audience this size, but could that have been God trying to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would finally reach out for him? I think that's what those are. The Bible says that's what those are. You know, sometimes God will allow what he hates to accomplish what he loves, and he really, really, really loves you. And he wants you to enter into eternity so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could have a restored relationship with him. And if that means that you enter into eternity with a few scars, then so be it, because he loves you so much. So I'd encourage you to draw near to God as well to repent, to turn from your sin, to believe, and to start a relationship with him. And if you don't know how to do that, man, ask someone. If you're watching this online, there's probably a button somewhere where you can raise your hand or ask someone a question. Those are real people in that chat box, in that, in that chat room, and they would love to talk with you. You can call one of our campuses, and we would love to walk you through that. In a second, the band's gonna lead us in a song and it's a beautiful song, and the words apply so perfectly to this. And I just ask um, that you would make the words of this song your prayer. I'd encourage you to sing out loud if you're listening to this in the car or watching at home. But now I think that we're ready to dive into the temptation of Jesus. Uh, next week, we're going to learn that one of the first things God will do in our lives 
in the lives of his followers is he'll bring us to a very uncomfortable place of weakness so that we can learn to depend on him. So would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for your word. Thank you that you just give us such amazing perspective. God, I pray for, I pray for changed lives this weekend. Somehow you could work through my awkward and fumbling words to make your truth move to hearts. I pray that hundreds of people lay down their grudge against you and draw near. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for new brothers and sisters to start a relationship with you. And I also pray for renewed hope, renewed joy, and renewed courage as you prepare us and mature us and shape us. And I can't wait to see what you do through the people that are listening to this message in the triangle and all over the world as they allow you to prepare them for an amazing purpose. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.